All right, as you know, we've been talking about routines, disciplines, and habits, or life-giving routines. I know routine can sound like a, a, a bad thing. We don't like to just, you know, do things out of rote or do things just out of tradition or just out of routine. We need a good reason for why we do what we do. But there are life-giving disciplines. For the believer, there are life-giving disciplines. Now, I want to say, just an hour or so before Jesus was arrested and charged with blasphemy, and then ultimately, in less than uh, 24 hours, probably somewhere in the range of maybe 12 hours at best, he was crucified, um, just before Jesus was arrested and charged with blasphemy by the sort of wayward religious elites of his day, the young tender-hearted disciple we know of as John, who wrote the Gospel of John, heard and noted one of the most profound but simple realities of life. In John 17, 1-3, Jesus began to pray just before they left the upper room and went to um, the garden where he was arrested. Jesus prayed this, what is called the high priestly prayer. Um, he begins praying, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all Mankind over all flesh. So that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is Jesus praying just before he goes. And John heard this. That to all whom you have given him, he, the Son, may give eternal life. And here it is. And this is eternal life. That they may know you that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. None of the other gospel writers uh, documented this. None of them wrote it. But John, the one who leaned against Jesus' chest when they were in the upper room having this final Passover dinner, he heard when Jesus prayed this, and it's right in line with the kinds of things that John writes all through his gospel and all through the letters that he wrote. He says, and this is eternal life. Jesus is praying, saying, Father, you gave it to me to have authority over all mankind, over all people. And you've given it to me so that I can give them eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Just in case you missed it, this is eternal life, to know you, God, to know you, to have a relationship with you. And Jesus Christ, whom you've sent, to make you known, to reveal who you are. That's how John's gospel starts, is that Jesus came and he revealed to mankind, to humanity, who the Father is. Now he's saying, just before he goes to the cross, 
this is eternal life. Knowing you is life. Knowing you is eternal life. Not just long, long life, but he's talking about a quality of life. Knowing you is full life. Not life like in this planet, but life with no end and no death of any kind. In, in this world, sin is death. Sin, sin brings death. In eternal life, there's none of that. Nothing robbing us of any life. So it's not just the length of life, the volume of life, but the quality of it. Knowing you, God knowing you is eternal life. Now, knowing God, I'm going to make a bold statement here. Knowing God is the essence of being human. The essence of something means that's the nature of it. God created us like him, in his likeness, in his uh, image, to know him. He didn't create automatons. He didn't create little robots or puppets. He created beings to know him. And that's the very nature, the very essence of being human, is to be like God, to know God. We've been studying, you know, this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and where this comes from, you can see it up there, 1 Timothy 4, 6 to 16. In verse 7, it talks about pursue this discipline uh, of of godliness, the dis- discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And it says that godliness is profitable, not just in this life, but in the one to come. And godliness means, it's an English word that's been contracted, godliness means godlikeness. That's where the word comes from. And I know I've said it every week, sorry for the repetition, but Getting it in our head to be God-like is to know him. That's what God created us for. That's the essence of being God-like is to know God. The essence of something is its nature. And in our nature is this drive. That's why C.S. Lewis and others said, humans have like a hole in them, a God-shaped vacuum that can be filled by nothing but God. It can be filled by nothing. And so many people, myself included, have in their testimony the, the, have the testimony of saying, I tried to fill it with this. And for a moment, it seems like, oh, that did it. Oh, I liked it. You know, it, it was that, that hole was filled with, you know, all the usual things in our culture, maybe with, you know, some kind of stimulant, drugs or drinking or something, partying, popularity, sex, um, uh, accomplishment, money, um, you know, some kind of uh, prestige, you know, oh, he's really, all of those kinds of things. And they don't add up. They can't fill it. The vacuum is shaped in a way that nothing can actually do it. Everyone has that. Everyone has that. That's why you hear of people that'll come around and just say, you know, I, I believed in this for a while, in something, and then at a certain point I knew, no, it doesn't quite scratch the itch. There's something else there that just I'm not getting at it. 
And, you know, it, knowing God fills that void, fills that vacuum. And God made us that way. He made us in His image. He knows what will fill that void, that vacuum. And He knows that we'll try all kinds of things and it won't work. God-like creatures need a relationship with God to be fulfilled. God-like creatures need a relationship with Him. It's who He made us to know Him and to be known by Him. To know Him and belong to Him. And you know from your experience on planet Earth that relationships require effort. Amen? You know it. Every relationship requires some effort. Now, hey, sometimes you meet somebody and you think, wow, we just met and, man, we clicked. Like, it it just, it was easy. But maintaining that relationship, advancing that relationship, progressing in it, it will always require some effort, right? I... I have some relationships in my life that I feel are satisfying. And there's elements of them that are very uh, easy and simple and free-flowing. But there's effort required still, even in the best, even in the easiest. In my relationship with Rose, I know there's effort required. There's effort required because... She has her will. She has her perspective. She has her view. (laughs) Now, this is such a setup to make a joke, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. You people are evil. I know what you're thinking. John's going to go off here, but I'm not. I am the same, and all of us are like that. Now, I talk to people quite easily. I don't think I was always really outgoing. I wasn't terribly shy, but I talk to people quite easily. But there are some people I meet, and I just, boy, this really takes effort just to have a, you know, you're looking around, you're looking for something, you know, and it's like, I really like uh, plastic plants. You know, like you're looking for something to have a discussion about, you know, you just, it's difficult. But even with the ones that are the easiest, it takes some effort, right? It really does. Um, although when Dwayne and I get together, we both talk quite easily and somebody needs to shut us up. It'll go on for hours and, you know, um, it's, it's maybe too easy to talk, but it requires effort. It requires some discipline, right? It requires some discipline to uh, not just do what self wants to do, right? In, in any relationship, that's, that's, the, that's the reality. It requires some relationships are work. Amen? Healthy relationships will mean some degree of discipline and priority. We prioritize something. We have a good relationship with somebody, but you have to prioritize. I need to see them. I haven't seen them for a while. And I, you know, they say absence makes the heart grow fonder, but sometimes it actually, you know, just makes a distance, right? It, create, it allows distance. You need to prioritize. 
and relationships require time. Some time. Uh, There's a, a great author, preacher of a generation ago named A.W. Tozer. I know I've handed out books by him in here before. And A.W. Tozer wrote this. The person who would truly know God must give time to him. The person who would truly know God must give time to him. If you want to know God, but you don't give him time, your relationship will remain like relationships with people that you never give time to. It, it might even be that, hey, it's amicable, and, you know, we, like, we're, we're good. There's not a division. Maybe it'll feel that way, but you don't really know them. And with God, the person who would truly know God must give time to him, some of their time, which simply, again, means you have to prioritize some time with God. Like, let's just say it as it is. We're talking about prayer today, and if you would know God, if you would have a a rich, progressing, deepening relationship with him, you'll have to prioritize it enough to say, I'm going to give him some time. And I wanna, I'm not as quotable as A.W. Tozer, but I want to add to what he said and say, to his insight, and say, a scheduled time with God is a great benefit. Not just some time, because you know and I know how often you can say, ah, we should get together. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah, and you know how that goes. If you don't say, hey, it's worth it, I'm going to set that time. Man, sometimes it doesn't happen, like forever. It just, you know, some things might come about. It's not a bad heart, but it just, if you don't set it. So, I say to you tonight that I want to give you a prayer template, but It will be of no use if we don't say, you know what, it's worth it for me to know God more. And I'm going to determine a time when I'm going to meet with him. We make time for what's important to us, right? We like, you know, we just, it's reality. We make time for what's important to us. If I say, I'll read the word every day, but I'm not going to set any kind of a time What happens? Maybe I'll read it every night just before I go to bed when I'm kind of useless. I'm reading that thing and, you know, just to read a few verses, I'm conking out all the way through. No, I'm going to set some time and, and make it a priority. And in terms of prayer, I kind of have to do that because what happens if you say, I'll do it when I have time? Ha ha, you never will have time. And the devil will make sure you never have time. Because, you know, the enemy that we have, does he want every one of us to be a murderer? Well, I don't think he would mind. But his priority, his main thing, is just to keep you away from Jesus. 
to keep you away from the living God. You know, if he can make you be really wicked and evil and, you know, violent and everything like that, well, that's icing on the cake. But I think he will be pleased, happy, if he just keeps you away from Jesus because he knows that's your salvation. That's where life is found, as we just heard. To know him is eternal life. And the devil's goal is to keep you away from the one who is eternal life. So, last week, um, I mentioned the Lord's Prayer and uh, talked about um, this routine of prayer. So tonight, I want to touch on that, and I'm going to have to do it kind of briefly. There are uh, depths to this simple prayer template that we could preach a message on each one of these, but I'm not going to do that right now. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. So I mentioned this prayer template and how it, as a, as a, as a model prayer, changed my practice of prayer and without any exaggeration changed my life. In the mid-80s, I got saved in the early 80s, and I already was praying, but this gave me enough of a form to help me stay on track, because I think we're all kind of that way. It's easy to get off track, even when you're praying. It's easy, and this assisted me. Just before we read it, I want to read the context of this. This is in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. It's The longest section of Jesus' teaching that's in the New Testament, uh, Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7. And Jesus says this, And when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen. They want to be seen as, ooh, look at them pray. He says, and when you pray, look at verse 6, But you, when you pray, go into your inner room and when you shut the door pray to your father in secret and your father who sees in secret will repay you he'll repay you openly when you pray verse 7 and when you are praying don't use meaningless repetition as the unbelievers do so in all three of these Jesus keeps saying and when you pray and when you pray and when you pray three times he says that not if when you pray as Christians It is our, I don't want to say just duty, it is a duty, but again, if we want to be like God, it's it's like our medicine. If someone said to you, you have to take this every day or you'll die, you would take that prescription. Here's a prescription, you have to pray, you need to pray, take it, don't, don't, Don't neglect it. It'll be to your own detriment. He says, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray, three times, not if, but when. Now, prayer's not optional for those who claim Christ as Savior and want to be, and want to be like God and to know God. Okay, so let's read it. Um, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Pray then in this way, Jesus speaking, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven. In fact, why don't we all read it? You all know it. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. How many have this prayer memorized? For those that might be a little bit older, uh, they used to do this in school every day. Yeah, every morning. We'd sing O Canada and we'd say the Lord's Prayer every day. So even as a little um, unbeliever, I knew this prayer. I, I had this doubt. Once I got saved, it was like, oh, I, I, they were just words like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I could, you know, say the thing, but it didn't really hit the mark. After I got saved, I understood it. So here, Jesus says, pray this prayer. Now, this is a good prayer to pray as it's recorded. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's even more useful as a prayer outline, not just to say those exact words, and there, I have quoted the Lord's Prayer, therefore, I have prayed. No, it's even more beneficial to us as a prayer outline, and I'm going to do my best to, to finish this in the next two hours. Um, I'm going to do my best to be succinct uh, with each of these uh, outline headings, okay? So that we can cover this and uh, we'll move on to maybe um, more prayer um, equipping next week. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first statement, uh, verse 9, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's work backwards with these two statements for just a second. Uh, Hallowed be your name. The start of this prayer is worship. The word hallowed comes from an old English word, hallig. It means holy. Or it means to uh, venerate. You're esteemed. You're exalted. Your name is to be reverenced. Your name is holy. This beginning, hallowed be your name, this is a recognition of God's sacredness, of his holiness. God, I'm coming before you, just a man, to acknowledge your sacredness, your holiness. To to acknowledge and recognize that you're hallowed. And this recognition that he is esteemed and exalted and preeminent in the universe, and he alone is deserving of worship, this is a healthy place to begin prayer. I'm this, little, you are that. I begin prayer by getting a perspective that God is great. God is holy. He's not... He understands us. 
He's down. He came down and walked among us. But God is infinitely greater than us. And we begin by recognizing, God, I know my perspective is limited. God, I know my resources are limited. God, I know my patience is limited. My, my skills, everything, my understanding, everything is limited. Yours is not. Hallowed be your name. I begin with worship. And that's what Jesus is telling us to do here, is that we begin prayer by we begin prayer humbly in worship. In the New Testament, when it said somebody came to Jesus and worshipped him, it meant they got low at his feet. They humbled themselves before him. And when we come to God in prayer, we humble ourselves before the all-glorious one, before the almighty one, before the great one. We do this when we pray, and we get a perspective. We get a perspective it's, it's that thing. You know, we, we saw a movie years ago. don't remember what it was called. Bill Murray was in it, and he goes to this junkyard, and his dad had been in the circus, and he, the only thing he left to his kid from the circus was an elephant, an elephant that had been in the circus. Bill Murray goes to a junkyard and a Rottweiler comes running out. Those are intimidating dogs. They're, you know, they're big, they're tough. And Bill Murray comes around the corner, the Rottweiler comes around the corner, and he's sort of terrified. And then around behind Bill Murray comes the elephant. And this Rottweiler is kind of... And, you know, off it goes. Well, yeah, hey, you just met your match. You know, this beast, I don't even know what an elephant weighs. But, you know, in the animal kingdom, bigger is better. And when that big beast comes around the corner, that Rottweiler is sort of, eh, gets a perspective. I've, I'm outmatched. When we come to prayer and recognize who God is, man, we get a perspective. Look who's on our side. Look who's backing us up. It's like... I need that perspective because I'm like you. So much that's in the world, you think, gosh, I don't know how I'm going to handle this. There's, there's such challenges. It's too much. I'm overwhelmed. And then you remember, you get a perspective. Oh, who's on my side? God is for me. And all of a sudden, it's like, hold it. We were reading in Life Group just this last week or the week before about Jesus being in the boat and the, you know, and it's going to go down. It's filling up with water and Jesus is asleep and they're kind of freaking out and Jesus calms the storm and they're like, afterward, yeah, who is this in the boat with us? They're, they're getting a little perspective. It's like, wait a second. Like we, we knew he was great, but he can do that. He can speak to the, to the water and he can calm the storm, the, the wind and the waves. He can do that. It, we need a perspective and we need it regularly. Amen? Anybody else? We need that perspective. So worship God. Start prayer with worship. Hallowed be your name. But I said, let's work backward to the first phrase of that. Our Father who is in heaven. Now this goes to the point of getting a perspective uh, that when we know who's on our side, we will pray with a, it'll make a difference in our praying. 
we'll, we'll be different when we pray. Not just because he's almighty, he's all glorious, he's, he's omnipresent everywhere at once, all wise. Not just that, but he's our Abba. He's our Father. That's what that word, the, Jesus used that word, Abba. It's the word that a, a good Hebrew would use for their father. They still do. And, you know, it would be like us saying, Dad, that whether you're little or you're old, like, uh, it's a term of, en- of endearment and respect. Dad, my, my dad, my Abba, my father. I'm not just praying to God Almighty who's somehow separated from me. I'm praying to one. That, my prayer bedrock is my father. Wow. Now, this is why I said I got to try to be succinct because I could park here. And I say that because this particular piece of this changed my life. And I, I think it can change yours too, if it, al- if it hasn't already. But this understanding that what Jesus did for us in covering our sin and pulling us in was not just pulling us into like a big company or something or some big pyramid scheme with God at the top. No, he brought us into a family. And Romans 8 talks about us now having, the instead of a spirit of fear, we have the spirit of adoption by which we cry out the Holy Spirit inspires or invokes this cry, Abba, Father. It's like I'm responding to God now as not somebody distant, but somebody with whom I have a loving relationship, a meaningful relationship, a life-giving one. He is the source of my life, and He wants me to be close to Him. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Oh, this changes it. You're mighty and you're on my side, but wow, you're not just kind of on my side. You adopted me. You brought me into the family. And you carry on in Romans 8, and it says we're not only, not only do we have the spirit of adoption in us, the Holy Spirit, who, get this, affirms with our spirit that we are the children of God. Part of the Holy Spirit's work in us is not just power, not just miracles, yay, I want that, not just praying in tongues, yay, I want more of that, but it is to bear witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. And there are times, how many here feel like, gosh, I can't be a child of God? Not with my thoughts, not with my behavior, not with who I am, not with my limitations. I can't be a child of God. Yes, you are. And the Holy Spirit is constantly saying, yeah, you may have fallen. Yeah, you may have slipped up. You may have sinned egregiously. You are God's child, there is therefore now. In fact, you back up. Romans 8 starts. There is therefore now no condemnation. What? To those who are in Christ. That doesn't mean free pass, just sin any way you want. No, it means that if you're in Christ, yes, you sinned, you come back up. Oh, in Christ, there's no condemnation. I repent, I move on. He, that one sacrifice covered sins for all time. So, our Father who is in heaven... 
hallowed be your name. We are children of God, and the Holy Spirit's work is to affirm that, and on top of that, he says, you're not just sort of children with some rights, but Jesus is my real son. No, it says in, in John 17 that we read that God loves us with the same love with which he loves Jesus. And in Romans 8, it says we're joint heirs with Christ. We're joint heirs with him, with the Son of God. God's brought us in. That's not to make so much of us. That's to make much of him. So I want you to know, praying this prayer outline can change your life. Come to God and recognize what your footing is. This relational footing that God is your child. Okay. Already, I'm way over time. Okay, your kingdom come. Look at verse 10. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your world might be in turmoil right now. Your heart might be troubled with uncertainty or circumstances that are not under your control. There's not much in this world we can control. So you might be challenged by some things right now. But we have relationship with the God of heaven and earth, and he's our father, and he has all authority in the universe and allows us, through prayer, to bring his authority to bear in our circumstances. So we pray things like this. I'm facing a challenge at work, and so I can pray Your kingdom come. Your rule. Your order. Your order of things. Your sovereignty come. Your will be done as it is in heaven, be done on earth. God, I'm taking a stand. There was somebody years ago and he pointed out how the wording of this in the the Greek language that it was originally written in was a word that meant something like this. Your kingdom come. Like I'm putting my foot down. I'm not going to just go with the flow, with how things are. I'm putting my foot down saying, God, your will. And I don't mean I'm ordering God. I mean I'm looking at my circumstances and saying, no, they don't have the last word. Your kingdom come, God. Your will be done in this circumstance. Now, does that mean that we always get what we pray for, the way we pray for it, how we see it? Of course not. Anybody who's prayed probably more than twice knows that it, doesn't always sort of play out. In fact, I would say in my experience, often, usually it doesn't kind of unfold the way I saw. But here's the other part of that. Your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. So I'm saying, God, this should not be. This circumstance is this way, and I'm praying that your kingdom will come, your will be done in this situation. And God does his will and inherent in that prayer is that your will be done not god your kingdom come my will be done on earth now i wish a lot of times i could just say i want it to go the way i want it to go god but oftentimes (laughs) and now 
as a man of some advanced years, I can look and say, thank God he didn't always answer my prayers the way I thought was best. He did things a different way. I know my kids are always saying that. Dad, I'm so glad that you didn't listen to us, but you did things the way you knew best. No, they don't, but for me, with me, but we do it with God, right? He unfolded things, and it's like, I thought I knew, I really didn't know. He knows what's best, and we're praying it. So inherent in that prayer is also an acknowledgement that, God, I'm putting this out there, I'm praying, but I want your will done. I pray that with a lot of things. Lord, I... I need you to do this. I need this. I, I, I'm bringing this circumstance to you. I don't know what, you know. Well, now, I sometimes am even praying. God, I don't know what the best way is, but I know you do, and I'm praying your kingdom come, your will be done. If you, if you show me what it is, I will pray more uh, kind of fervently for that thing that way, but often I don't know. Often... I don't know if this is a lack of faith. I don't think so. Often, in complex circumstances, I don't exactly expect to understand exactly how it should all unfold. So instead, it's like, God, I'm bringing your authority to bear on this circumstance. Intervene in this situation, God. There's, there's maybe a relational challenge or something, and God, would you work this out? I know you can do it. I know you've done it before, and you do it better than I could um, sort of script it myself. So we start there. Uh, the, the second thing after we start with worship, everything, you can bring everything to God, everything in your personal life, everything in your family, everything in your nation, everything in your generation. Pray for everything. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Next. Now this whole prayer, I would say, is very practical. But this part includes something very material. In, in not, not, it's not limited to that, but it includes material needs. Our daily bread. He says, give us this day our daily bread. I'm, I'm in need, God. And why would I just fret? Or why would I just try to make it all happen myself? How about I trust you for the supply, God? Nothing's too big. Nothing's too small. It's like, oh, I don't have, you know, leprosy, so I'm not going to pray for my healing. I just have a cold. Well, why, why deal with that? Why not let God heal the small sickness as well as the big one? Why not... Let not, why not ask God to give you the, the, the supply for small needs as well as big needs? How about for everything? Just go to him. Ask him to do that. Ask him to meet every need. God is our source. He's our source for everything. He knows what we need even before we ask him. Yet in the next chapter of Matthew, Jesus says, ask and keep asking. Ask him. Because your Father will give what is good to those who ask Him. Our asking is not a bother to God. He wants to give to His children. Amen? Just like I want to give to my kids. 
I have limitations. God doesn't. And we say our daily bread because God, you know, I kind of wish God would just set me up and say, here's $10 million, John. Now you won't have to seek me anymore and ask, you know, for things. You're just set up. He doesn't do that. Why doesn't he do that? Because he wants us to continue to trust him. And if I had $10 million in the bank, I would probably just get pretty slack. I wouldn't need to go to him and trust God. I wouldn't be relying on him. I would be relying on the God of my bank account. So he says, praying for daily bread. Keep coming back to him. Keep coming back to him. Keep trusting him for all of these things. But he wants to give. He wants to give. Faith pleases him. So he wants us to depend on him. He wants us to trust in him. When I was uh, young, we, and we would be going to see my grandparents, my parents, they didn't want us to be selfish, like my brothers and my sister were. Uh, they wanted us, so they would say, we're going to visit grandma and grandpa. And they would say, when we get there, don't you be asking grandma for things. And it's and you know we we always would wait till grandma was in the kitchen and and maybe they were and they lived in a tiny house maybe they were out of earshot and it's like grandma because she used to have this sort of gold embossed I don't know what it was originally for but it was this I, I don't know if they call it embossed it's like a gold kind of container but y- you know when it's kind of raised like there's a picture on it but it's sort of is that embossed okay. And it was kind of a gold or copper color and it sat up on this thing and we knew that thing had cookies in it and, you know, and we also knew that we wanted it. And so, you know, um, Dad, I think somebody's trying to steal the car out there. Dad steps out the front door. Grandma, you know, we, we wanted some of that and my parents, as I say, I know they were trying to just make it that we didn't just show up at grandma's and the first word was, Grandma, can we have cookies? But she wanted us to have them. That's why they were there. I know that's what they were there for. It was for us. God has got things and he wants to give. He's not stingy and he wants to give to his children. That, that desire in human parents to give to their kids is not, God is not like that. We're like Him. We're picking up something that is of the nature of God. So that God is saying, Jesus is saying, ask God, say, give us this day our daily bread. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. It's like, where am I coming for my supply? I'm coming to the source of all things. God, I need you know my need, even before I ask, but Jesus said to do it, to ask. I'm coming, I'm asking. Lord, in all due respect, I have a need, you know it, and you have the supply. Next. And forgive us our debts as we, have, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Okay, this one is so important that verse 12 Uh, sorry, uh, verse 14, Jesus comes back to it and says at the end of the prayer, 
If you forgive people for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive, then your Father will not forgive yours. He even comes back to this when it says, this is key. And I want to just say, this is a key for us. Bitterness is all over in the world. Bitterness is all over in the church. It's, and I'm not saying that to slam the church. We're human, and I know how much we can nurse a grudge or nurse bitterness or nurse an offense. It's like, well, they don't understand me or, you know, if they only knew this and, you know, therefore, and, you know, I'm hanging on to that thing. And Jesus is saying, let it go. Forgive. Forgive. I don't mean just let it go as in, oh, it's nothing. No, if it was an offense, present it, God I forgive. I release it. I want to say that as a key for each of us. This is a key. Even if emotionally you haven't caught up with that forgiveness. Sometimes, and I've done this many times in my life and God has been gracious in it. I've been offended at something and it's like... I don't think they even know what they did. But I'm going to forgive. And I'm speaking it. And then in the course of conversation, I remember what they did and maybe somebody else had an offense and I find myself going back to that thing that's a hold and I, I prayed that I forgave them and it's like, ah, now I need to repent. God, forgive me. I, I handed that over. But I need to, I haven't caught up with the emotion of that forgiveness yet, but I'm going to keep declaring it. God, I forgave them. I'm standing on that. They don't owe me. I'm letting that debt go. And then it comes up again and I want to, you know, get worked up about it. But no, I've got to let that go. I've got to let that go. And I had someone in my life, very significant. Um, okay, it was a girlfriend when I was single and three years we went out. And in the last days of that relationship, it got ugly. And, man, I was bitter. Uh, you know, it, emotionally, it just was like, uh, I was bitter. I got saved, and I prayed so many times. I would think about her, and I... And years later, someone was at my work, and they said, Hey, she's back in town. You should give her a call. It's like... Uh, and they... The person actually said to me, you should give her a call. She hasn't changed a bit. And I thought, that's exactly why I'm not calling. Um, which, just to be fair, it was not like, it, like the relationship, I'm, that it was really more about her and that the fault was with her. We were a couple stupid young people and I, I bore at least as much responsibility for that thing. But when they said, no, you should give her a call, I thought, no way. And then it was Christmas time and I thought, oh, I'm going to. We talked. We actually went out for dinner and talked, not, not in a date way. I would kind of moved on. I had been saved for a couple of years. And I realized when I went home that we talked for hours and I was telling her about Jesus and about what he's done in my life. I was excited. Uh, I'd been saved at that point. I don't know. We had been apart maybe for about four or five years. I was just excited about everything about Jesus. And I realized when I went home, I thought, you know, uh, my heart 
has, I have no bitterness whatsoever. Any of that stuff was gone, and I wasn't even thinking of it while we were talking. But I went home, and it was like me talking with just a, a friend, that I, somebody I used to know. And it was like, I realized somewhere along the line of praying, God, I forgive, God, I forgive, God, help me, I need to be forgiven too, God, I, I pray with that, I don't want to be better. Somewhere along the line, it just dwindled down. I hadn't even realized that I wasn't praying that anymore. It was gone. It was just gone. God, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who've, who are indebted to us, those who've trespassed against us. It's like, pray it, even if you're not there yet emotionally. Pray it. Bring it to God and say, God, I know your word talks about this being important. I don't want to be part of hanging on to this. And so that's Peter says to, to Jesus at one point, he says, how often do I need to forgive my brother? Up to seven times? I think Peter was expecting Jesus to say, wow, Peter, you, we should have a statue of you on the dashboard. You're a saint. Man, seven times. Instead, what does Jesus say? How about 70 times seven? Which I think just means as often as you need to do it. It's just an infinite number. You just need to keep doing it. Keep forgiving in the same way that when I keep coming back to Jesus and saying, oh, I did it again, Lord. I, I blew it. Please forgive me. Can you still forgive me again? It's like, yes. It's infinite. And he wants us to be the same. He doesn't want us hanging on to that stuff. So, forgive. Forgive us our debts. We come, we confess Prayer, a prayer routine is a good time to keep a short account with God. Keep coming back. Lord, I lost my temper yesterday. Lord, I was sarcastic about this. Lord, I gossiped yesterday. God, I, whatever it might be. Lord, I'm coming back to you for the millionth time and I'm praying about my anger. I'm praying about my greed. I'm praying about my selfishness, my pride. Whatever it is, I'm coming back, God. I need to be forgiven for that display of it and I want to be set free from it, which leads us to the next part. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from Many translations say from evil, but the definite article is in there in the original language, and it actually means, and deliver us from the evil one. It actually is not just generic evil in a general sense. It's deliver us from the evil one. Don't lead us into temptation. Now, the Bible says God does not tempt us. He cannot be tempted and he does not tempt us. So why would Jesus say, pray that? Because that word, the word, the Greek word that's used there, I think it's perasmos, it has two meanings. One of the meanings is test or testing. And one of the meanings, testing, which means you're proven to, to better you. The other word, temptation, means being seduced to sin, being drawn into sin. That's the tempting God will never do. But does God test us? Oh, you bet he does. Why? Because he wants us to be better. 
I don't mean just better behaved. I mean, he wants us to be like him. He wants to, to refine us. This, in fact, the same word, parasmos, is used of refining gold. It's the same word. They are tempting gold, testing gold. They're refining it, making it pure. It starts out one way, and gold is being tested, and it comes out to be pure gold. So here, he's saying to pray, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from him. Set us free. Don't lead us into that kind of seducing temptation. So daily, we can be praying, God, I know I'm going to be tested. I know there's going to be some temptation, but would you enable me to sidestep it? Would you take me around unnecessary temptation? Allow me to be tested and proven and to become more like you. But God, would you put a barrier there where the enemy's got a trap set for me that he wants to lead me off to be more like him instead of more like you? And it's interesting that he would, well, not quite end the prayer with that because he, he ends with something else, but he leads us to this final part and it, there's two primary temptation stories in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve are tempted and they fail, and then in the book of Matthew, chapter 4, where Jesus is tempted and he succeeds. And what was the difference? Because the enemy came with the same kind of subtlety. What was his, what was his strategy? Get Eve to say, has God really said that? God's trying to keep something. It's like get her questioning the motives of God. And he misquotes the word just a little bit. Did God say that? To get them going another way and start doubting God. Hold it. God did this because he doesn't want us to be wise like him. It's like <laughs> that the enemy inside is going, yes, I've got her. And I've got Adam who stood there like a like a, an idiot, watching, watching, you know, his wife have a conversation with a snake. <laughs> As I've said before, that should have been the tip-off. It's like, oh, hang on, what? <laughs> hey, honey, look, a talking snake. Bat, 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 you know. Instead, <laughs> but then the next one, the enemy came to Jesus and did the same thing. He used this and said, if you're really... If you're really the son of God, you should have this and that. He's doing the same thing. You should be questioning God's motives. If you're his son, why are you suffering hunger out here in the wilderness? If you're his son, you throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and his angels are going to catch you and save you. It's like, but instead of waiting for a second, Jesus says, it's written. It's written. He goes back to the word and boom, takes the sword of the spirit and pierces the enemy through with that and says no it's written this way and finally it says be gone he he tells the enemy to beat it because he's just he's trying to tempt him and he's not going to win that battle not with the sinless son of god so 
For you and I, temptation will come. And testing will come. God, give us clarity which is which. When we're being tested, God, we want to pass the test. We want to be refined like gold. We want to be more like Jesus. When we're being seduced to doubt the motives of God, to start thinking God is really not, he doesn't have your best in mind. He doesn't have your best in mind. God is setting you up for a failure. Hang on a second. Does the Bible say that anywhere? No. I start hearing things like that, and it's like there should be an alarm going off that, no, no, this is not coming from the Holy Spirit. This is, now wait a minute, I'm feeling absolutely condemned and crushed by condemnation. That can't be coming from God because it says right here, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. So once again, this is why we need God's word as well. We pray, we have a prayer routine, but we need his word. We need to keep getting it in us. Don't give up your, your word routine either. So I'm going to end it there for now. We'll pick up on prayer next week. And, oh man, after next week, we're going to be just the most powerful. You know. God, we do thank you. God, I, I say that lightheartedly, of course, but we do want to be people who pray powerfully we want to be people who are more and more and more like Jesus and people who more and more and more know you and reach for you and seek you and draw close to you and God I pray that today for all those who might be somewhat discouraged about their prayer life their prayer routine or maybe their lack of prayer life or prayer routine. For all of those, Father, I pray even now for grace to be poured out that we would again be people who'd have that uh, inner pull by the Holy Spirit to come close to you and to grow in this um, area of the Christian life, this necessary um, Christian discipline of praying. God, I pray for the inner resolve by the Holy Spirit in your people tonight to begin to have a different sort of um, ability to be disciplined in prayer, a different sort of jumping off point, uh, a perspective shift. Whatever's needed, Holy Spirit, would you bring it that we would be people of prayer, people of power, people of the promises of God that we can pray the way other saints have prayed with power and effect and transformation in Jesus' name. Bless your people in here tonight. Amen.